0: Good (laughs) morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our teaching team. And on April 15th, 2013, Daryl and Shirley Jenkins checked into room 225 at the Best Western, just outside of Boone, North Carolina, near the Cherokee Mountains. They were going to have a vacation, and the next day, they were both found dead in room 225. They were 72 and 73, and their deaths were ruled to be that of natural causes, but they weren't. Seven weeks later, Jeannie Williams and her 11-year-old son checked into room 225, the best Western. They were there because Jeannie's daughter was at a camp nearby, a science camp, and they were going to pick her up the next day. And the next day came, and no one picked her up at camp. And so they started making some phone calls and the hotel clerk started walking to room 225, and when she got to room 225, it was clear Jeannie was unconscious. Jeffrey, the 11-year-old, was dead. The killer had not left room 225. You had three deaths within two months, all in the same room. The assassin was a silent assassin carbon monoxide. Turns out that room 225 was right above the pool and the heater to the pool, and so there was a pipe broken, and that pipe was pumping carbon monoxide into that room, and they didn't realize it. They're going about their life. They're doing their thing. They're trying to have fun and looking forward to the next day's events, and those next day's events never come because the silent killer attacked them. When they checked into room 225, they had no idea What would happen? The reason I tell you that tragic story is because when you become a follower of Christ, you're checking into room 225. Your threat is not carbon monoxide. It's a different silent killer. It's Satan. It's the devil and all of his forces which seek to destroy you. And you might think I'm just going about my day and I'm just going about my life and everything looks fine. But there is someone, something trying to kill you, and you better wake up, or it'll get you. Believe it or not, we are nearing the end of the book of Ephesians. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verse 10, the first word is a word some of you have been waiting for for a long time. It's finally, finally. Paul is wrapping up this uh, book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul, by the way, if you're new with us, he started the church in Ephesus and then years later was writing this book to try to encourage them. And he's been encouraging them and he's coming to this end section. And this last section of this book that we're gonna spend the next month on as we try to finish this, the main point is this. You are in a war. You're in a war. That may seem dramatic, But here's the thing. If you think about this, your experience actually tells you this is true. Think about it. Why is life so hard? Why is there so much pain and suffering, especially for Christians? Why is it so hard to make progress? Why does it feel like every time you want to do something good, you want to try to make some good change in your life, there's so much resistance? Why is that? It's because you're in a war. Some of you have seen this, even as you've just been trying to apply chapters 4 and 5 in Ephesians, as we've been teaching through this about the new life we have in Christ and the new effect it has on your praise and your gratitude and your humility and your marriage and your parenting and your work. And you've been trying to put this into action, and all you hit is resistance. Why? Because you are in a war. You go, I thought it was going to be so easy if I was just going to try to love my wife the way Christ loved me, but it isn't. You know, I thought it was just going to be, finally, I'm going to try to do God's will. I'm going to try to do things God's way, and and so surely he's going to make that really easy for me to do, and yet I'm finding it harder to respect my husband than ever. You are in a war. Now, Now, here's what I know. Some of you are actually sitting there thinking, gosh, this is a little melodramatic, like, I think... I don't think things are that hard frankly my answer to you would be are you sure you're in the battle because I see my role a lot of times as kind of as a pastor as I see my role as kind of an army chaplain and especially an army chaplain during a time of war And uh, I know there's a lot that army and military chaplains do, but, but I feel like what you would be doing as an army chaplain in the midst of a war is you would be going to people who are in the battle and some of them are having success and some of them are encouraged and some of them are seeing victory over sin and some of them are seeing greater capacity to love and some of them are having greater ability to push to God in prayer even when life is hard. And so my job is to say, yes, way to go. It's a battle, keep going, it's worth it. I also feel like my role is to go to these wounded soldiers in the faith who are saying, I'm I'm trying, and this is hard, and I'm suffering, and this is difficult, and just when I thought I was gaining momentum, then this happened in my life, and then that happened, and then I felt tempted in this way, and I just don't, and my role is to say, hey, it's a battle, keep going. But I'll tell you who breaks my heart the most as a pastor are all the people who say they're Christians, but functionally, they're not in the battle. If, if you don't feel like there's some resistance in your life, you're not following Christ. Because the process of following Christ is a process of saying no to sin and saying yes to righteousness. And you're, that's never going to be an easy process. And so if you're just not getting any resistance, maybe you're not really in that process. And I want to encourage you to get in that process as hard as it is, and I want to get encourage those of you who are in that process to say, hey, stay the course, this is worth it. That's how Paul's finishing this whole section. He's been talking about the new life. He's been talking about the new changes and he's under no illusions that it'll be easy, which is why he's finishing this whole book with a kind of locker room talk, right? You know that thing the coach gets everyone together and says, all right, we got one more half, here we go. We, we can do it, God's with us. This is the locker room talk. Listen, we're in a war. What this passage is gonna help us see is who our enemy is and what it looks like to fight this war in faith. So let's pray together we'll dive in. Father in heaven, um, we need you desperately to speak to us by your word. Give us faith, give us ears to hear. God, would you encourage those who are all too aware of the battle they're in. God, would you help them to see who their enemy is, to see how he fights. To see the nature of this kind of battle and to see how they can fight it faithfully to the end. God, give us your grace as we open your word here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as followers of Christ, we're in a war, and this passage, I want to ask four questions that this passage addresses, and that's what we're going to do as we work through this text today. So, the first one is Who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? If we're in a battle, if we're in a war, as followers of Jesus, we're in a battle. Who is our enemy? Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, well, that's easy. It's Democrats. (laughs) Uh, It's it's, uh, Republicans. It's uh, the mainstream media. It's CNN. No, it's Fox. It's uh, Brett Kavanaugh. No, it's uh, Feinstein. It's uh, college campuses and professors and safe spaces. No, it's Hollywood. No, it's Nike. No, it's Colin Kaepernick. No, it's... It's Amazon. No, it's Google. It's Facebook. They've got all our data. But look at what Paul says in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places... Paul says, listen, our, our, our battle is not against blood and flesh. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against humans. We have a spiritual battle. We're in a battle that's actually much bigger than that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that there are people that you just mentioned? I mean, of all the people you mentioned, aren't there quite a few of them who are very much against Jesus and his purposes? And the answer is undoubtedly Yes. But here's what Paul says. He says, they're not your enemy. What's actually animating their animus toward Jesus and his people is another power, a bigger power, a deeper power, a truer power. And so if you get distracted thinking that people who disagree with you, who even persecute you, are the enemy, you're missing the battle that's really going on. That's what Paul says. Well, what is this battle? Well, it's a big battle battle look at the words he uses to describe the the enemy in verse 12 the rulers authorities the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places there is a bigger enemy that we face bigger than just people or corporations or systems or structures though all of those systems and corporations and people and structures and all of those things are influenced by this larger demonic power. That's what he's talking about when he says rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. This demonic realm, this reality that there were angels created by God who rebelled against God, who joined forces with Satan, and who now work against God's purposes in the world. That's who our enemy is. That's who the biggest problem is. And look at how they're described. First, they're described as powerful, Powerful. Look at these words: rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. Right? These are powerful words. These are powerful beings. Now, here's the thing: in our day and age, we don't really think. We're 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 kind of skeptical about this stuff. Like I know already, some of you are like, "The, the devil, demons. Really? Really? Like we're not—we're not very convinced about this because we sort of think everything is just what I can see and what I can touch and kind of what's in front of me. But the Ephesians, they were under no illusions about this. They absolutely embraced this kind of reality. In fact, Ephesus had the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was a city filled with magic. It was a city where once a lot of people came to faith in Christ, you can read about it in the book of Acts, they started burning all of their books with spells and incantations and magic sort of stuff. They were very familiar with the power of darkness. There's a great story. I think that's actually probably the first viral video in history, maybe, was in Acts chapter 19. If, uh, if you're not familiar with that story, what happens is Paul has been traveling around the, the world, and he's healing people in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 19, there's these guys that hear about it. They're all brothers, and their father's a guy named Skeva. They're known as the sons of Skeva, And they start thinking, man, th- there's some real power going on here. As Paul's casting demons out of people and doing healings and... And man, maybe this is a kind of magic we could tap into. And so they find this man who's possessed of a demon. And they say to him, they say, In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out of him. And if you were here a couple years ago when we preached through this, you might remember that the demon turns back to them. And do you know what he says? Ah, Jesus I know, and I've heard of Paul But who are you? And it says the demons then overpowered these brothers, beat them, and left them naked running through the streets. That's why it says the first viral video. There's no way anyone in Ephesus had not heard of that. Right? Like, like they didn't have a cell phone, but if they had, I mean, it was like, did you hear about those guys? No, they weren't streaking. They got beat up (laughs) by demons, right? So The Ephesians were absolutely clear that there was demonic power in the world, that there were supernatural forces in the world, and they knew that these were powerful. Our enemy is powerful. Our enemy is also wicked. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 12. It says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is dark. Our enemy is evil. Our enemy is seeking to destroy us and do wicked, dark, evil things in the world. It's powerful. Our enemy's wicked. Third, our enemy is crafty. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This word schemes is a word that's uh, the Greek word methodeia, Methodia. it's 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 methods against the methods of the devil what he's saying is that the enemy is not just sort of attacking willy-nilly and doing all sorts of random things to sort of jump out and scare you but that rather he has a strategy he has a purpose he's crafty the enemy is doing things he's got thousands of years of experience and he's seeking to destroy us and he has lots of methods he uses and as Kaiser Soze famously said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And that's where some of you are even now. Oh, I don't know about all this. Perfect. He's got you right where he wants you. Well, if that's our enemy. How does the enemy attack? That's the next question. How does the enemy attack? See, he's strategic. He's got a method. He's got a plan. But here's the good news. We know his playbook. We've got the scriptures to look and to see how does the devil act? How do these cosmic powers of darkness, how do they function? What do they do? And what we see is at least three things when we look at the rest of scripture about how the enemy attacks. First, the enemy attacks by destroying, by destroying. John 8 is a passage you should go read this week because in it Jesus talks about these dark powers. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning. He's the thief that seeks to kill and destroy. He's the one who goes to God in the story of Job and seeks to destroy him, to destroy his family, to destroy his property, to destroy his faith. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about this thorn that he had in his flesh, which he called a messenger of Satan, which even though God was using and even though Christ's grace was sufficient to give him what he needed to endure it, it was still a messenger from Satan set out to destroy him. The enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your ability to love. He wants to destroy your purity. He wants to destroy your work. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to destroy you. Some of you, you're feeling this. You're feeling like, oh my gosh, I just feel like I can't get healthy, and I can't get a break, and I can't just seem to, I just, everything around me feels like it's just crumbling And you're going, am I going crazy? No, you are in a war with an enemy who seeks to destroy you. The devil also doesn't just destroy, he lies. How does he attack? By lying. This is what Jesus says in John 8. He says he is a liar and the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language is what Jesus says. And this is the whole nature of what, what the enemy does. The enemy lies to us. This is what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, hey, hey, did God really say? Did God really say? By the way, that's how the devil continues to speak as he seeks to undermine the sufficiency of God's word. Did did God really say? It's lies. Don't you know, Adam and Eve, that God's holding out on you, that there's actually this better life that's promised? If you'll just kind of become like God and do Your own thing? It's a lie. And then he's such a crafty liar that once we give in to temptation, once we give in to sin, once we go ahead and we do live for ourselves instead of living for God, then he lies about how far away we've gone from God. He says, God could never take you back. God could never forgive that sin. God could never make you clean. Don't you know how dirty you are? He's a liar. The enemy is destroying, the enemy is lying, and the enemy is accusing The word Satan literally means to accuse. He's an accuser. Satan likes to Satan you. He accuses you. You know, if you were a more serious Christian, you wouldn't be struggling to pray like that. You know, if God was real, if your faith was real, you wouldn't have that temptation anymore. you're ugly. You're stupid. How could anyone like you, let alone God? That's the voice of the enemy. He is an accuser. He's a liar. Now, why does he do all this? Why does he destroy? Why does he lie? Why does he accuse? Here's why. To get us to sin. That's why. He's not just trying to make us feel bad. He's not just trying to hurt us. He's trying to get us to sin. Why did he seek to destroy Job? So that Job would curse God and die, so that he would sin. Why does he lie to Adam and Eve? Because he knew that the wages of sin would be death, and that by disobeying, they would lead to death. Why does he seek to accuse you? So that you won't repent, so that you won't turn back, so that you won't find life in Christ, but rather will keep going off away from God into sin. That's what he's trying to do. He doesn't attack just to randomly attack. He's got schemes. He's got methods designed to get us to sin. I have a good friend who's a leader of a significant ministry in this city, and her husband is a pastor of a church downtown. They have this incredible opportunity as a church to use their parking lot to build a new structure that will be a lot more parking than they've ever had. And on top of that, lots of affordable housing, which you can't get downtown they have this whole strategy and this whole plan and God seems to be just remarkably in this. And the day before the initial meetings that they were going to have as a congregation to cast the vision and talk about this and pray together and get feedback, the day before that, she was getting out of her car in the church's parking lot downtown where she was mugged and beaten by a homeless woman. Had a concussion. Wasn't back to normal for two, three weeks. It was absolutely clear to me that her wrestle was not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of darkness. Why? Because what would the enemy like? The enemy would like for that church to go, you know what? We need to fear our neighbors instead of love them. We better not get more affordable housing. We might get more people like this down here. That's the whole goal of the enemy. He's not just randomly attacking her, he's attacking her to try to get the church to respond in fear instead of love and faith. I have another friend who leads a powerful ministry that's citywide, he can't catch a break physically. One thing after another with his health just keeps breaking down, and he's doing all that he can to take care of himself and to rest well and to Sabbath and to do all these things, and he cannot catch a break. You go, why? And here's why, because when I'm in a conversation with him, he's in tears saying, I feel like I'm getting more of God than I've ever gotten and I feel like I'm right on the brink of getting more of God than I've ever known. And the enemy would like to destroy that. The enemy wants you to sin. Get this. Your struggle with Satan and your struggle with sin are practically indistinguishable. He's not just trying to scare you. He's trying to get you to distrust God. Well, third question. What's the nature of our battle? What's the nature of our battle? First, we see that it's dangerous. Look at what it says in verse 11 Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice this is a dangerous battle, it requires armor. He does not say, Put on the sweatsuit of God. Put on the yoga pants of God. Put on the football jersey of God. He says, put on the armor of God. Why? Because it's dangerous. This is the kind of battle that if you lose it, your faith could be gone, your love could be gone, your purity could be gone, your marriage could be gone, your kids and your grandkids could be gone. It's dangerous. There's a lot at stake. This enemy is seeking to destroy you. You better be ready. The second thing that we know about this is that it's a continuous battle. Our battle is not just dangerous, it's continuous. Look at what it says there in verse 12 at the beginning. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and so on. This is fascinating, because in this whole passage, what Paul's doing is he's using this military metaphor. He's using this metaphor of battle and of armor, and there's lots of other Greek words that Paul could have used to say, for our fight isn't against flesh and blood, or our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but he actually introduces a mixed metaphor. He he messes up the illustration with a word that he only uses in this one place in the New Testament, the word wrestle. Why? Why does he do that? He must be trying to make a point. Have you ever wrestled? Anybody ever wrestled? Like, like, listen, if someone invites you to their kid's wrestling meet, go. If they invite you to their kid's swim meet, don't go. Because at the swim meet, you're going to be there for three hours, and you're going to watch them swim for like 40 seconds. But a wrestling meet's incredible because you can go, and the periods last Two minutes. Three two-minute periods, and then you're like 15 minutes later, your car's still warm in the parking lot. Like it's incredible. And you go and you go, two minutes? What in the world? Like a football game. That's supposed to be tough. Like that. That lasts two hours. Have you ever wrestled for two minutes? It's exhausting. It's hand-to-hand, it's every muscle in your body, you don't get a break, it doesn't let up, it is intense, it is continuous. Uh, at student ministry, uh, there's all kinds of games that people play on Wednesday nights before and after everything happens, and so I was teaching here last, uh, this past Wednesday, and I was teaching the high school students, and so I was hanging around after, and, uh, and I got hustled by this kid named Christian, who's a high schooler who is apparently very good at this game we play called Java Java. In Java Java, there's this trash can, and everybody holds these little ropes, and the idea is you get out of the game if someone makes you hit the trash can or if you let go of the rope. And so I'm kind of standing back there, and he's, he's hustling me. He's like, hey, uh, see that Java Java game? Yeah. You ever, you ever played? No? Is it pretty fun? Yeah, it's all right. You would probably be pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean I don't I don't know. I'm thinking like, I don't wanna hurt some seventh grader. <laughs> he's like, you have, you know, maybe maybe you should play. I'm like, all right, well come to find out he's the best kid at the whole game. <laughs> and he wanted some fresh meat. So so we get together, and when we start, there's like 15 or 20 people playing. I'm literally holding the rope next to seventh grade girls, and I'm like, (laughs) wow, they're strong. Like, I would think I could get this out of their hand. And and eventually, it came down to me and Christian. Me and him over the thing. And uh, my daughter was taking video of this, of course. And we went for probably about 40 seconds. He eventually won because he got this grip that I I couldn't, he handcuffed me. but I was going for like 40 seconds, and like 30 minutes later when I was home, my heart rate was still up. <laughs> and, I, and I work out, and I'm like in pretty decent shape right now, and it's like, but it's not even close. Wrestling is exhausting. Wrestling is continuous. That's what it felt like we were doing. That's what Paul says this battle is like. It is dangerous, and it is continuous. Some of you have told me, oh, my gosh, I just feel like life will not let up. This happens, and then that happens, and then that happens. Is this ever going to end? And the unfortunate answer is no. No. Now, now get this. It might not always hurt this bad. It might not always be this bad. But once the intensity of this battle's over, it's going in a new direction. It's continuous. It's wrestling. Now, now listen, I know that that is discouraging. But this is why Jesus, his last words to his disciples in the Great Commission were, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because he knew you were going to always need him. And that leads us to our last question, which is how do we fight this battle? How do we fight this battle? Well, this passage tells us a couple of things. The first one is in verse 11, is that we are to put on the armor of God. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, that's what we're going to talk about next week, because next week we're going to look at all of these individual pieces of the whole armor of God, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the shoes and the, and the, the shield of faith, etc. We're going to go through that. And what I'm going to argue next week especially, you've got to come back next week, but here's a little preview, is that putting on the armor of God is putting on Christ, It's putting on union with Christ. It's thinking about how you are connected to Christ. That's been the theme of Ephesians. Ephesians 29 times has talked about being in Christ or being in him or being in the Lord, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, over and over and over 29 times. And so when Paul says put on the armor of God, he's saying put on Christ. That's what we're going to look at next week. But he tells us one more thing in this passage that is important for telling us how we fight this battle, and it's this, by being strengthened continually in the Lord. Be being strengthened in the Lord. That's not a typo. It's on purpose. Be being strengthened in the Lord. Look at verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, because you have heard that it's kind of the locker room talk, and because it's sort of a rah-rah armor type thing, and because of just the, the complexities in translation into English, you might hear this and think what Paul's doing is saying, all right, everybody, you're in a battle. It's dangerous. It's tough. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to dig deep. You have greatness in you, you have victory in you. Dig deep. You gotta dig deep because you need to pull out of you all the strength that you have. Be strong in the Lord, right? That's what we think he's saying. But that is not what he's saying. He's saying, be strengthened in the Lord. Don't look to you, don't look within. Look to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Let me show you this. This verb, be strong in the Lord. I don't do this very often, but in the original language, this verb, be strong, is a present passive imperative. It's a present passive imperative. Here's what that means. You don't need to know Greek to understand this. An imperative means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a tip. It's not advice. It's not an idea. It's a command. You have to do this. You need to be strengthened in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. It's an imperative. But it's a, passive, a present passive imperative. So it's present meaning you need to constantly be doing this. It's not a one-time thing because the wrestling is a constant thing. The need to be strengthened is a constant thing. It's a present tense. It's ongoing. You never get to stop doing this. You with me? So you got to do this. You got to keep doing it all the time. But here's the key. This is a passive A present passive imperative, which means it has to be done to you. You are commanded to constantly do something that has to be done to you. That's why you could literally translate this, be being strengthened in the Lord. What what is Paul doing when he's saying this? He's saying, don't look at you. Don't look within, look to the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what he's saying. So the job, even before we get to the armor, because listen, the armor's heavy. If you're not strong, you can't carry this armor. The job is to be being strengthened in the Lord, to put yourself day by day into a place of saying, God, I need you. God, I need your strength. God, I need your resources. God, I cannot keep going on my own. I need you. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It made me think of 2 Kings 6. Second Kings 6 is this story where all of these enemies of Israel are gathered around Elisha, the prophet, and his servant. They found out where he is. And in the night, they've come and they've surrounded the place where he's staying. And Elisha's servant goes out in the morning. You sort of picture him with his cup of coffee. And he opens the door and he looks out and they are surrounded by an army. And he begins to panic and he begins to freak out just like you would, just like I would. And Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And in that moment, his eyes are open and he's able to see that though there's an army surrounding him, there's an army of angels surrounding them. He thinks he's surrounded. But That army that surrounds him is actually surrounded by the Lord. And he's able to see that he has protection. He's able to see that he is covered. He's able to see that it isn't his strength. It isn't Elisha's strength. It's the strength of the Lord that will deliver them. This is why Paul prays. Look at what he prays in Ephesians chapter 1. This theme runs through this whole book. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, he prays this. I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you'd be able to see, open his eyes, you'd be able to see that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That, that verse, at the end of verse 19, 119, great might, that's the same phrase used in here in 610. Put on the, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Same word. Paul says, I'm praying that you would see this. And here's the great might, he says in Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Here's what Paul prays, get this. I pray that you could see the great strength of the Lord Jesus who is raised over every power, over every name, over every ruler in the heavenly places. Paul says, be strong in that strength, not yours. This isn't a dig deep and you can do it and rah, rah. This is look to Jesus because he has done what you can't do. He reigns and rules over all of these things. You may think you're surrounded, but you're surrounded by the strength of his might. Put your hope in him, trust in him, put on Christ and he will surround you. That's what we'll pick up on next week. Let's pray. Father, what good news that we have a Savior who died and was raised and is now seated far above all rule and authority and power in the heavenly places. And so God, when the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of darkness and evil in the heavenly places, when they attack us, God, we need not fear, but we need to look to you Give us eyes to see you. Give us eyes to see that you surround us, that you fight for us, that you protect us, and that you are with us even to the end of the age. We pray it in Christ's name.